0: Bye.
1: Hey everybody out there, welcome to another episode of Paul or Nothing. Come on people, this is widescreen podcasting and the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. I am of course your host Sam Wiles, I hope you're all well, safe and sound. Today we're going to be breaking from recent tradition in that we're actually going to be having a good old fashioned solo episode Yes, I have been very fortunate indeed, everyone, to have so many excellent guests on the show of late that it has pushed back a lot of these solo-based side series. If you can cast your minds back maybe a year ago, uh, that's when we covered the Venus and Mars era of bonus tracks... So, naturally, we will broadly be covering the 1976, early 1977 period, a.k.a. Wings at the Speed of Sound, that kind of time. There is a bootleg called the Ultimate Wings at the Speed of Sound Archive Collection that is going to broadly cover a lot of the same songs that we're going to look at today, but it also includes Denny Lane's Holidays, as, again, that's from that period, And since we just did an episode on holidays with a friend of the show, Andy, I thought now would be the best time to move this episode up the queue, shall we say, so we can have a true 1976 bonanza, especially with a Listen With Sam, Wings At The Speed Of Sound episode on the horizon also. That being said, the main source we're going to be using today will be the bootleg collection MoMAX Hidden Tracks Volume 9, in addition to another couple of one-off tracks I either want or have to talk about. Possibly due to the hasty recording of *The Wings at the Speed of Sound* and all of the touring and all of the other projects, there were no non-album B-sides. Which means all of the cold cut tracks we are going to be discussing here today, here today, will be true obscurities found not even on the most comprehensive collections that McCartney has officially put out. Exciting stuff, eh? I mean, if you're into that sort of thing, which you really should be if you are here. I mean, I am. That's why I'm here. But before we can do any of that, folks, we first have to go through the housekeeping. So, what do we have in terms of news today? Well, the only news I really have for this week was news that should have been included last week, just before I dropped The last episode where I was speaking with Joe Wisby from Beetle Books, Paul went ahead and dropped the video for the remix of Find My Way from 3imagined or 3imagined as produced slash mixed by Beck. This is the first of the remixes showcased to the public and I think it's clever in terms of marketing that they are showcasing early on that this is going to be half and half in terms of remixes and covers. Again though, like Kiss of Venus, it's great to also see a music video. I'm so glad that they're putting so much effort into this release. There's such a production and effort behind this. I wonder if closer towards April we're going to be flooded with the same amount of uh, magazine articles that the actual McCartney 3 had. Also, in terms of videos, I thought it was quite interesting how 3imagined and Makati 3 now both sit at two videos apiece. Though, I reckon we are going to get more from 3imagined to come closer to April, and the sliding video is about to drop any day now I can feel it, so maybe it'll be 3-all in the future. Like Dominic Fogg's cover, though, in terms of the actual music, you are going to have to wait till the actual review episode to hear my thoughts, but all I'm going to say in terms of beck's remix here i know a lot of blunts are going to be smoked to this album folks anyway that's it for the news really not much to go on at all to get in contact with the show people drop us an email at paul at gmail.com i always love to hear your paul mccartney stories your paul mccartney anecdotes your factoids your trivia have you met him have you been to his shows. Do you have strange collections? Do you know someone who knows someone who knows someone? That kind of thing. I always love reading out here on the podcast. And for the first time in quite a while, we actually do not have any emails to read out. I'm sure some of you are very happy with that. So we're going to press right on. For more regular contact to keep up to the show on a day-to-day basis and see any and all hot takes on all Paul McCartney-based news, follow us on our Twitter, which is at McCartney Pod. Of course, we've got our blog as well, which is packed with all sorts of bonus Paul or Nothing content. If you haven't got your fix here today, check out our bonus content at paulmccartneypod.wordpress.com. That's paulmccartneypod.wordpress.com. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube by topic in Paul or Nothing or Paul McCartney Podcast. If you want to help out the show right now, if you want to help out in a way that takes less than 30 seconds, I would really appreciate a review, you know, preferably a positive one. I'm not going to make you. But hey, the better the review, the more that boosts us up in the algorithms and that kind of thing. It gives us that exposure. And if you'd like to write something nice about the show, well, that would just be Fine and dandy also, wouldn't it? I'd also appreciate that. Though we only ever do read out the bad reviews on this show, don't we? And if you want to help out more directly, if you want to help keep the lights running, help see the show grow, then please consider joining our Patreon family. Patreon, as I'm sure you know, folks, is a platform by which you, the public, can support independent content creators such as myself by chucking a couple of dollars a month down the internet at my face of course there are many benefits to joining the patreon you get two day early access to all episodes you get raw unedited audio from all past interviews you get scripts for the episodes and even a bit of extra bonus content that i can't even talk about on here right now but yeah please do consider joining it always goes back into the show and the goal the dream one day is just to do paul or nothing full time We've had another long-time patron this week, Sam hoed up his donation from $1 to $5. So, yeah, Sam, thank you so much for that, dude. Uh, Great name, by the way. Of course, normally at this point, I have to assume why someone may have upped their donation, but Sam was very kind and just wrote a quick message that was very explicit as to why he had. Uh, He said, Hey fella, just a note to say thanks for all the content of late. Given the entertainment you've provided and the fact that lockdown has been good to me, it only feels right to up the contribution. I do genuinely I do genuinely look forward to a new episode and you've been knocking it out of the park of late with some great guests and topics. So yeah, keep it up, chap. Although obviously the real world might soon impinge on your ability and time, but that's cool too. All my best from sunny Suffolk, Sam Howard. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm quite speechless there. You know that's always a rare thing with me, but yeah, it it feels very good to be rewarded for hard work that I feel like I am putting into the show, and I'm so glad you've responded so well to it, Sam, and I'm so glad that so many others of you out there have as well. The show has been doing particularly well lately. I always like to see it grow in this fashion. We've got lots of good stuff coming up in the future on Poor or Nothing, and... Yeah, I hope this uh, trend continues. Thank you, Sam, for uh, being a part of the growth of Paul or Nothing. You know, it's always... It means a lot. It really does. I'd also like to take a moment quickly just to thank the entire Paul or Nothing Patreon family before we dive into the show. So thank you to Chris Atkinson, Richard Driver, Richard Binnington, Mr. B, Teresa Brader, Stephanie Miller, Lou DeLonardo, Stuart Cook, Sharon McCoy, Katrina S., Anastasia L, Robert Carabelli, Tony Vosal, Warren Butson, Matt Phillips, and once again, thanks to Sam Hode. Right, folks, now that all the plugs are done, let's crack on with the main portion of the show. One, two, three, let's go. Of course, everyone, you know the drill by now. I'm sure you've listened to at least one of these Cold Cuts episodes, but the title should be pretty explanatory. It's nothing too complicated, really. I'm going to go through some Hot Hits and Cold Cuts, a.k.a. obscure or unknown, unreleased McCartney content, and I'm going to give my thoughts on them. Maybe you'll be introduced to some new songs, maybe I'll change your opinions on some old ones you've already heard. And that's about it. Let's have some fun. Okay, folks, we're going to start off today with a, a pretty awesome number, actually. This is a song that I personally feel is very important in this story and is endlessly fascinating. This is The Oriental Nightfish.
0: It was a Thursday night. I was working late when I first caught sight of the Oriental Nightfish.
1: Now, as we know, this side series has been fraught with error and backtracking, and yeah, by all rights, this song should have been on a much earlier episode, but here we are now. I wanted to start off strong, and I've also been writing about this song in a recent article on the blog, so I am blessed in that sense, really, because this this song's been a a secret favourite of mine for many years now. Uh, I was first introduced to it through the music video which I will cover in a future music video podcast with Ed Chen. And ever since I saw said video and heard the music, I was just struck with how strong the whole package was, how strong the songwriting was, how good it was, quote-unquote, for a Linda song, if you want to call it that. But the whole experience just vividly stuck with me. And whereas a song like Seaside Woman might have elements of me enjoying it for what it is, Oriental Nightfish is a song that raised my estimations of Linda McCartney. What I never knew, though, up until very recently, was the fact that Oriental Nightfish was actually written and composed during the Band on the Run sessions. The Wide Prairie album liner notes... Placed the recording back in the London sessions for the album. So, sadly, it looks like this wasn't a Lagos-based project. Either way, though, fuck, could you imagine this thing on pand on the Run? Where would it go? Would it have affected the album's runaway success in any way? Was it ever envisioned as a Wings project? Or is this just Linda McCartney with Wings? Like, that's how it's described in the music video, you know, that's the credit... Was it ever planned to be released as a single? I mean, after investing all the money in creating an animated music video in the 70s, you you would have thought that this song would be more commercially available, but it's not. Yeesh. So many questions, so few answers. Onto the song itself, though. I mean, you heard it there for yourselves. In terms of atmosphere and mood, the song is completely unexpected. Like, I thought we were going to get another seaside woman-style ditty, but instead we get this alluringly dark, foreboding tone that is just so arresting. This isn't a song just done for the fun of it. This is a serious, unique work of art that demands more attention. It throws you right down the rabbit hole on this murky, distorted, synthy, miasma-based journey that, frankly, I just find really cool. There's no other song quite like it, and the production creates a vibe that is totally alien to me. It would be easy to say that it's just 70s Linda psychedelia, but it's more than that. This I feel like it's proper I feel like it's some proper avant-garde shit. But it's done in this really cinematic, bright, vivid way. I guess intensity would be the best word to, de- to describe this song, which is crazy to suggest for a Linda track, you know, the wife of Mr. Silly Love Songs. But bar 1985, this would have been the least laid-back track on Band on the Run, and certainly the least light-hearted. Lyrically, the song is equally dark and ambiguous whilst you're listening to it. uh, Like, you know, they really complement the tone with its fragmented, semi-spoken word delivery amongst the swirling production. But when you break it down, it becomes a little more decipherable. It was a Thursday night. I was working late when I first caught sight of the oriental nightfish the colors were swirling the room was getting hotter I couldn't see anything emerald blue purple red I was working late So I don't know about you but to me in my thinks too much about everything kind of way It seems, in a way, a continuation of the themes that Paul and Linda, quote-unquote Paul and Linda, explored in another day with this overworked, lonely woman. And now it seems said woman has been so overburdened that, that she's having some sort of crazy, trippy, psychedelic breakdown. I mean, I don't know how you can't be drawn in right away, though, just from the title alone. Come on, The Oriental Nightfish... What a brilliantly evocative title. How can you not want to find out more about that? Now, in the way that Seaside Woman is a pretty mediocre at best song beefed up by an amazing band, well, imagine a better song backed up by the the same amazing band. And that's what you get here. Like, all of the production cylinders are firing on this one that make it far more cinematic and atmospheric than her last composition ever was. There is a much stronger sound overall, it's much more densely laid, giving it a far more professional and serious presentation. You know, Paul really goes the extra mile for his missus to present this song with as many mad Professor McCartney moments as he can. Of course, Linda would still be calling the shots here, but it's great to see that when Linda gets a bit esoteric and a bit weird and a bit out there, she doesn't get silly. And that's what makes it a trip. When it comes to the guitar in this song, I'm inclined to say it's Paul. You know, Denny does get a lead on Seaside Woman, so maybe he thought it was his turn. But the, the, the phrasing and the style is just so characteristically Paul. I mean, you would never have guessed that one of Linda's songs would have such a screeching, wailing guitar. And yet here it is, and it's awesome. Rather interestingly, and this is what also leads me to believe that Paul was on guitar here, the flutes for this song, after the title phrase, you know, Nightfish. bo 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 bo. That's Denny Lane, which is just so cool. I can't help but picture my man Denny just going nuts with the woodwind in the recording studio. It's great, isn't it? So, yeah, the Oriental Nightfish. I can't wait to cover the music video in a future episode. And it really is a shame that I haven't had a chance to cover it previously, since it wasn't an official part of a New Wings canon. I know that a lot of my love for this track, though, is purely subjective. But I would like to think that a combination of listening to the song just before and, you know, the addition of my sycophantic ramblings will have helped to convince you that whilst Linda's discography does have some real lows, Oriental Nightfish stands proudly for the potential of great heights in the Linda McCartney discography also. Our second song of the day is another track from much earlier in the McCartney story. Again, we should have covered this one this time from the nineteen seventy four era during the recording of the one hand clapping documentary that we'll also be covering very soon but yeah, literally this probably should have been on the last episode of this side series uh this is a number called "Love My Baby."
0: Shout it, love my baby and that's good enough for me Yeah, well I love my baby and I wanna shout I don't know what she's talking about But I love my baby and that's good enough for me Well love her in the evening time Love her in the night love her in the morning when a moon is big and bright. That's right. Now, I love my baby. want to shout. Oh, don't know what she's talking about. I love my baby. That's good enough for me. Bam, 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 bam. I said, the bam, 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 bam. Well, I love my baby. That's good enough for me. That's right.
1: Right away, folks, i got to point out the elephant in the room that is the title. Like, you couldn't find a more generic Paul McCartney title if you tried. I mean, fucking hell, Paul. This is a gorgeous little number, but with a title like Love My Baby, no wonder this was left on the cutting room floor. Thankfully, though, on the 4th of November 2014, the song was released for free for download on McCartney's own website as a promotion for the Venus and Mars archive release. Seriously, though, everyone, I am head over heels for this generic-as-fuck-foolish jingle, and I couldn't be happier with that. It's pure Paul, pure and simple. You know, you can either look at this as being something he can either bash out in 30 minutes, or see it as the type of song that is fundamental to Paul's entire being. It sounds cliche at this point, I know, but this is another of Paul's songs that transcends space and time and literally could be enjoyed by anyone from any period in history. From, say, 1900 onwards. Coming from the 1974 era, though, we know that Paul was working on tracks like You Gave Me the Answer, I'll Give You a Ring, and Walking Through the Park with Eloise. So it's clear his love of all things 20s and 30s has made quite the resurgence in 74. And that same kind of innocent universality is all over Love My Baby. We're gonna get this a lot today, but this is definitely one of those tracks that exists more as a method of Paul being able to get an annoying melody out of his head that he knows is getting in the way of something more pressing that he should be focusing on. Remember, he knows the cameras are rolling here and the mics are all set up for this one hand clapping thing. So he's gonna take the opportunity to get a decent recording down of this. It's a better quality than say, any of the aforementioned 1974 home recordings and the fact that it sounds as good as it is really is a shame, because I want more, and I want it to be more of a well-known bootleg number. To be fair, though, I can only imagine how much I would not enjoy this song if it was drunkenly bashed out on an old wooden grand piano, as opposed to the gorgeous little vibraphone, harpsichord-like instrument he was working with here. But yeah, as with so many of these bonus offcuts, the only real complaint I have is that it was unfinished. Like, I would have loved to have had this appear somewhere, anywhere, you know? And if not that, just for it to be a little longer, even if Paul just repeats a few of the verses. Just like Little Richard's baby face from the same one-hand clapping sessions, Paul is just banging out these classic one-minute piano spasms that are just the best thing ever. They really resonate with me. I'm not really sure why. Again, I know I'm biased as fuck, and this is only a one-minute tune, but I'm I'm completely smitten with it. I've played it 50 times already, and I'm probably gonna play it 50 times more. Our next song is the first of several demos on today's episode. The first of three, actually. All of which later go on to become fully-fledged McCartney compositions later on down the line on later albums. The first one would appear on 1989's Flowers in the Dirt, the tape and the CD that is, and it's called Oue
0: Soleil.
1: Okay, I'll admit it. I never knew I was going to be including this track when I first drafted the main outline of these episodes. But back then, I never knew there was such an early demo for one of my favourite 80s McCartney songs. Like, this really goes much further back than I ever would have anticipated. I was absolutely blown away when I saw this song title listed amongst the bootlegs. I thought it must have been a mistake or something. It wasn't, and once again, my entire worldview had been turned upside down. It may have only been under a minute long, but I just had to give it a shout out. According to MoMAX Hidden Tracks Volume 9, this bootleg hails from a home recording taken at Paul's house in the summer of 75, which means it wouldn't be another 14 years until it found its way onto an official release. And even then, it doesn't appear on the final vinyl edition of the album. Again, many of you will know about this already, but for someone discovering this shit for the first time, which is what this podcast is, this is incredibly exciting. I'm getting, you know, goosebumps. It feels like a real find, and only adds another entry to, to the list of Paul McCartney compositions that he revisited many, many, many years later to great success. This is Just a fun little behind-the-scenes peek at the process, and I'm finding it more and more interesting as I do this podcast. Not sure if that's a good thing, but hey, it's cheaper than a therapist. This version of the song is rather rudimentary, with the major bells and whistles being removed, and it focuses solely on the catchy, repetitive chorus. Just like Love My Baby, many of these demos are not full songs so much as they are musical ideas that Paul needs to record in case he forgets them. I mean, imagine what wonderful melodies he's probably kicking himself over never having recorded and ultimately forgot. And whilst we don't have the counter melody, the false starts, the bass line, the soaring of the wood, but one day in the future, Paul will think of all of those things And he will think of that little riff that he recorded back in 74, likely under the influence of some terrible 80s weed, and present it to his new band. And thank heavens he did, because it's one of the best songs from those sessions. I'm going to be talking about this later on with another couple of songs, but it's becoming more and more clear to me that whenever Paul does get a new band, and maybe he hasn't written all that much new material for them. He does seem to go back through all the archives, maybe with them, maybe without them, maybe just with the producer, and digs up all of these old abandoned fossils. And the fact that he's able to do so much with them, it's just incredible, isn't it? Anyway, anyone who does follow me on our Twitter, at McCartneyPod, will know that I really do want to get every single available version of Uwe SLA, I hope I said it there correctly, on vinyl, because there are just so many and the covers are so pretty. However, despite how different and enjoyably silly and historically important this version of this song is, uh, and despite my nerdy urge to complete a collection, I don't think my love for this track is going to be enough to persuade me to actually go out and buy the specific. 20-disc bootleg collection that it will inevitably be a part of. Thank God for the internet, am I right? Following on from a song that took 14 years to be released, we have a song that does go on to appear on the next Wings album. And it was, perhaps surreptitiously, recorded at a soundcheck on their previous tour. This is She's My Baby. this was taken from the concert in Melbourne, Australia on November the 13th, 1975, during the first leg of the Wings Over America tour, before becoming the Wings Over America tour. We don't get any lyrics at this point, but the song is instantly recognisable, to die-hard Wings fans at least. Yep, this isn't like discovering the big hitter such as the orchestra theme on the piano tape, but I bet this song is loved by enough people listening now to be worth a mention. I'd also love to think that this was a medley that he came up with live during this particular sound check, very much tying it in with Sliding off McCartney 3, which was also from a sound check. Again, folks, another pretty short clip there indeed. I don't know if this was part of an official recording or whether it was some plucky fan in the crowd. But yeah, this is another tune rattling around in Paul's head and he's playing around with it in what spare time he has. Spare time being a sound check at one of his shows. Also, we know that Paul can write to order particularly quickly, but the fact that several of the songs from that album may have been written ahead of time, as well as other members of the band writing and singing their own songs, it makes it easier to understand just how Speed of Sound was able to be put out as quickly as it was. I mean, I know... Paul's bandmates don't keep diaries about this sort of thing, but imagine how many songs they would have heard Paul noodling away with on a piano at one time, only for them to actually play on it years later. There must be quite a lot of déjà vu in the Wings recording studio. Speaking of the recording studio, one of the things that we know about Wings at the speed of sound now is that it was released and recorded incredibly quickly. Now, in my ignorance, I just assumed Paul, being the beast that he was, just wrote all the tracks for that album on the break, but this clip proves otherwise. Either way, though, whether Paul had knocked this one out prior or whether he came up with it on stage, as this side series is proving time and time again, there are no gaps in writing for Ball, you know, that there is no moment of reprise or rest. It's far more continual and mercurial than we could ever have imagined, really. Next up, we have another demo. This one would only take around four years to make its way into fans' ears as both a single and album track from Back to the Egg. This is a demo for Old Siam, sir. Super
0: big e wave. Thank you.
1: Oh my gosh, we're really hammering this point home today, aren't we folks? Yes, we do indeed have another demo which is basically only part of a final song that we know and love. And again, it's clearly part of McCartney's long line of jotting down ideas for future use. What I find most intriguing about this song though, was that it was far more complete than a lot of the other fragmentary demos. We have drums, guitar and keys in this one. And it actually sounds like a live recording, perhaps even with Linda taking part on the keys. But yeah, in, in part, it's remarkably similar to the final track. Obviously, we don't have the solos or the breakdowns or the changes in tempo. Uh, and it is, again, a bit like Ue just them going through the riff for about three minutes. Though it should be pointed out that it isn't just melodies that Paul has to get out of his system. It can be lyrics and lyrical melodies also even if they are just a first draft, like uh, placeholder style lyrics. Um, But towards the end of this song, you do hear Paul running through what is unmistakably the first few opening lines of the vocal melody, you know. Of course, the song is much more centered around the South Pacific, Asiatic, semi-problematic hook here. And there is no indication of Scarborough or Walthamstow at this point. So I reckon... At this point, this riff was just an attempt at doing something far eastern rather than creating the globe-trotting song we know today. Now, what's also pretty cool in this song is the little bit of chatter at the start. First of all, Paul says super big heat wave, which leads me to believe that this was the title of the song at the time, and also when you consider uh, when Andy was on the show to talk about holidays, that '76 was indeed the long, hot summer, so perhaps there's a connection there. But Paul also says, this is it, which would go on to be the opening phrase used on the Spin It On track. Now, the fact that these two songs are on the same album means that either Paul's got a fantastic memory, it could be a huge subconscious coincident, or direct proof that, again, at least with Back to the Egg, Paul again, maybe with the gang, went back and listened to these exact cold-cut tapes for inspiration. Also, if you remember, there was a little bit of controversy surrounding Old Siam Sir as to whether Lawrence Juba and Steve Holly should, should have gotten a writing credit on it. It's based on how, while they were jamming the song, it was their contributions that took it to the Old Siam Sir we know today. It's an interesting debate, for sure, but... I imagine Paul had better lawyers, and they could even play this demo in court, so what are you going to do? On to our first proper song today, folks. Our first full composition from this era, and it's really fucking weird, so you know I'm going to love it. It's a fantastic example of how far-reaching Paul's grasp is, in terms of what musical routes he's willing to go down. And on this next song, we'll see that he really is willing to try anything. No prizes for guessing how this one's going to sound, everyone. This is Reverse. As you just heard there everyone, this song is a backtracker or backmasker's dream as it literally is several minutes of Paul doing an entirely backwards song. Apparently it was recorded in mid-75 but and apart from that I've never heard anything else about it. Of course, just hearing the concept alone is going to be enough to either inflare your curiosities or put you off instantly. Like. I was listening to this song and I could feel the pretentious uni student in me bubbling to the surface, and I knew I was going to have to talk to you about how one could really find something interesting going on in this song, and how you could argue that it's one of Paul's most avant-garde works, but I just know that it's going to fall upon mostly deaf ears, and I get it. For most people out there, they are totally going to understand why this marijuana-induced, meandering, borderline, one-note tune-out kind of track that admittedly does run out of charm remarkably fast was never included on an album. But hey, I always champion the weirdest shit in Paul's canon, and after having just done Oriental Nightfish, I guess I don't find this all too shocking. It would be interesting though to ask Mark Liverson whether this or Carnival of Light is the better track. But. If I did have him on, I wouldn't waste his time with that question. Anyway, I thought it would be funny to get the song called Reverse and play it in reverse so we can see what it sounds like forwards, I guess. Right, let's have a little listen. I mentioned this on my recent spot on the Ranking the Beatles podcast, but Paul likes to set himself goals and then see if he can achieve them. He's infinitely ambitious for all ideas and treats them all equally and it's only once finished he'll question whether it was good or bad. This song, again, is mad Professor Paul setting himself a songwriting challenge and seeing if anything can become of it. You know, this is him going, can I do an entire song that is backwards? And Why shouldn't he go down that route? It was he and the Beatles who originally pioneered backwards guitar and backmasking all those years ago. So yeah, of course I commend him for trying, and the effort of said experimentation, that can never be taken away from him. But ultimately this song is only going to be of interest to stoners, conspiracy theorists and loser completionists such as myself. However, folks, one of the most exciting parts about this episode for me is that this is by no means the last experimental, slightly balmy composition we're going to hear from Paul today. And whilst I ain't the biggest fan of Speed of Sound, I now give 75, 76, that that post-Venus and Mars era, a little more credence, especially with the addition of his playing and production on holidays. Anyway, up next, we have a song that... I've just been dying to cover, so I'm not even going to come up with a clever little intro there. We're going to go ahead and talk about fishy matters underwater. Let's hear it. A synthy Moogie demo from the summer of 76. This is a song I've already mentioned quite a few times. I think I I highlighted it in our Egypt Station 2 bonus episode. Go and check that out if you haven't already. But yeah, Fishy Matters Underwater is a track that could almost be considered no longer eligible for this episode. As the riff from this deep dive cold cut has resurfaced as a bonus track for Paul's second most recent album. The song is now best known as Frank Sinatra's Party, which first came out with the Explorers edition of Egypt Station. And like a couple of the bonus tracks, I consider it one of the best songs from the album. Now, this means that there was a total of 42 years for this song to see the light of date in an official capacity. An incredible run, such a long amount of time. I remember being impressed when I heard I'll give you a ring on the 1974 home recordings tape and then that showing up in the tug-of-war sessions or I was impressed to see Lunchbox Odd Socks appear on the B-side to coming up, but 42 years, that's ridiculous. I'm so glad, though, that Paul is the way he is and did relentlessly record himself for posterity because... That meant I got one of my favourite Macca tracks of recent years. Could you imagine if he'd have never recorded this song and the riff was lost forever? It's too unspeakable for me to consider. Now, as you heard there, Fishy Matters Underwater is an instrumental and so therefore does not have any lyrics about attending one of Sinatra's mid-60s swinging parties. However, it was as much of a kick-ass groove back then as it is now. It has to be the case that Paul knew that this one was not worth doing right without the words to go with it. Again, Paul is always seen as this guy who just throws any old words onto some music, but no. Here, he has this amazing riff, and rather ruining it with some wings-at-the-speed-of-sound-level nonsense, he bided his time and it paid off. In terms of structure, like many other Paul McCartney demo tracks, the song is only the most basic form of the final number, and so, you know, it doesn't have any of the final flares, that, mm, such as bridges, codas, choruses, solos, and the lead guitar part, as well as the kind of, you don't have to doubt yourself, kind of mid eighth bit. And yet, without any of that, the strength of the melody shines through. Like, I enjoy listening to this version, to Fishy Matters, underwater it's cool it's hypnotic it's got a real mccartney to check my machine kind of vibe to it so of course i'm gonna love it now we've already mentioned this in terms of flowers in the dirt and back to the egg but what do we think of this track was paul himself trawling back through all of his tapes that we know he possesses to bring back fishy matters underwater maybe he even listens to the exact same high quality rips and bootlegs that we do Or maybe even during the sessions, Greg Kersin went ahead at Paul's behest to listen to a bunch of these recordings and he brought it back to Paul and said maybe he should finish it off. Did Paul write the lyrics after he heard the melody? Or were these also something else he was working on and then they just happened to serendipitously fit together? There is so much we don't know about this song. And whilst that mystique is certainly alluring, I would still like to know more, as it really would shine a light on Paul's creative process. Will this appear in the upcoming lyric autobiography book? I doubt it. So we may be forced to rely on what little he's spoken about this song on the "You Give Me an Answer" Q and A segment from his website. Oh well, it's still a great fucking song, isn't it? From one synthy needle to another, sadly our next track is one of those ones that Paul hasn't revisited in subsequent years, but totally should have, because of how great it is. This is Dervish Crazy Moog, or Moog. Now, I know you're thinking to yourself, wait, I'm sure I heard that awful song recently. And yeah, you did. It was part of a housekeeping segment I did a few episodes ago. And I'm not gonna lie, when I was listening back to it during a bike ride, I was like, yeah, I realized how irksome this track might be for others. Rather like reverse from earlier. This is another one of those McCartney compositions that revels in its lack of conventional melodic structure, which is just a fancy pants way of saying that. It's enjoyably weird for the sake of being weird and not meant to be a radio-friendly pop hit. Dervish Crazy Moog is another of my favourite subset of McCartney cold cuts, whereby it's less mad Professor McCartney and more mad Pothead McCartney. Yes, folks, it doesn't become hard to picture Paul with a huge doobie brother hanging out of his mouth working at this song at a console And it's even easier to imagine why he thought it was probably really cool at the time. Again, the notes say summer of 76, so between holidays and wings at the speed of sound. So with his quote-unquote time off, Paul, again, he's just noodling away with his electronica, with his new toys, in a kind of lovely Linda check my machine sort of way. You know, you write it drunk, you edit it sober, and clearly once Paul had cleared his head he decided to shelve it, probably wisely. Going back to reverse, though, this is a song that I do enjoy with a certain amount of schadenfreude, in that the idea that so many of you out there will undoubtedly skip the instrumental segment and decry me for even to continue playing it in the background whilst I speak brings me so much happiness and joy. Although I would argue that this song is certainly much more of an actual... Track than reverse, like it it does have some sort of direction to it, I guess. And if anything, this track really kind of predicted the kind of eternal anti-music sounds we'd hear in, say, the industrial genre. However, what I find even more interesting with this song in particular has less to do with the song itself and more its mere existence. This track proves that fishy Matters underwater was not a one-off, and that he really was pursuing this style of music. And it's a shame not one iota of said soundscapes made any sort of appearance on speed of sound. Also, some of you are probably thinking, what does that title actually mean? Well, a dervish or the dervish are a group of people described as thus. A member of a Muslim, specifically Sufi, religious order who has taken vows of poverty and austerity. Dervishes first appeared in the 12th century. They were noted for their wild ecstatic rituals and were known as dancing or whirling or howling dervishes according to the practice of their order. In other cases the term dervishes may have been used as a generic and often pejorative term for those of an opposing Islamic entity such as military, political, and religious institutions, including persons who may not have been considered dervishes in the strict sense. So, yeah, we learn something new every day there, everyone. And yeah, dervish crazy Moog. It certainly does have a whirling or howling quality to it, and it definitely is crazy, and by golly, there is a hell of a lot of Moog present. It may not be for you, but I don't think the title lies about what it is, do you? Pressing Never Onwards, and we now come across a song whose title sounds suspiciously similar to one that we covered on uh, John Lennon's Rock and Roll for our Swapcast. Instead of Do You Wanna Dance, this is Don't You Wanna Dance. So, there are actually two demos of this one. You just heard the second one there, with the first one being just a run-through of the riff a few times in classic demo fashion. But yeah, this is another hypnotically chill, lo-fi, electronic McCartney foray. Again, like all the other synthy stuff, it's a rather minimalist composition. Though, whereas a lot of the other tracks feel a little unfinished, I don't know, I feel like this is pretty much to go maybe just to re-record as is. I don't exactly know why, but I've always been really drawn to that 90s house lounge vibe that this song was exuding all the way back in 1976. And yeah, a lot of 90s music did harken back to the Beatles and Paul, so it does kind of make sense. But just that, that laid-back, electronic groove, along with that high-pitched squeal in the, in the synth section that makes up the hook is... Just one of those great, portentous McCartney tracks where it genuinely feels like he was messing around with this type of music far too early. Again, I know I've said it a lot this episode, but I would have loved to have heard this on either Speed of Sound or London Town. For a demo, it's also rare to have Paul give a proper throaty vocal, which was also pretty cool, and as catchy as the beat in this song is, the lyrics also have that same kind of draw to them, especially that that irresistibly goofy call and response backing vocal, uh, which also sport a really prominent part from Linda in the Mix, which I always appreciate. Something I picked up on right away though, was the significant use of a drumming machine used in this song, which along with the acoustic guitar immediately made me think of Holly Days, which we again discussed recently, Now, considering that album was recorded in the same period and as this song does lead me to believe that there is a connection between the two. Maybe it was recorded up in those sessions with Denny. Maybe it was even recorded on the same drumming machine. The solo in this song is also pretty fucking wicked. Again, like many other tracks in today's episode, it's uncertain who exactly is on lead here, but my ear certainly recognises it as Paul. It literally reminds me of the three-part solo in The End from Abbey Road, but, you know, I guess we'll have to wait until Luca Perazzi's new book comes out to settle who played guitar on this once and for all. It is annoying in these episodes, folks, trying to identify particular players when Paul is a multi-instrumentalist genius who More often than not, does all of it himself at home without anyone else. But hey, that's the nature of the beast. By now, I'm sure many of you out there will have already realised that Don't You Wanna Dance is well at my alley. That's where it's going to stay. I'm not sure what else I can say. Next up, we have another cold cut that has been a regular part of my Paul McCartney playlist for some time now. Spoiler alert, that means I don't think it's bad at all. This is How Do You Like The Lyrics? (laughs) Thank <laughs> you. God, this song has a dorky groove to it, doesn't it? This certainly feels like a sister track to Don't You Wanna Dance? And you could almost imagine the two of them sequenced back to forth on an actual album in the way that they are on the bootleg. Sadly, they're not. The shambolic recording, though, the uh, prominent acoustic guitar and rough background backing vocals gave the song the same kind of round-the-campfire quality that many of the tracks from Band on the Run had. And that's one of my favourite Wings vibes. So it was very exciting to hear it in this little cold cut. You know, this is an atmosphere that you know was being experienced by the band themselves and definitely would have been present during, you know, the Wings at the Speed of Sound sessions or the Water Wing sessions that we're going to look at in, in the next couple of episodes. Though I actually like how unfinished the song is. It gives it a feeling of something like the Isha tapes or McCartney one, and you know I'm just weak against that kind of McCartney sound. If anything, I actually couldn't believe how straight up open and raw and unpolished this track was, which is so against his usual output, and that's why it's it stood out to me and why I've listened to it more than once. Lyrically though, this song Uh, somewhat reminds me of George Harrison's It's Only a Northern Song, in that it's a song about the song that's being sung in a terribly metatextual sort of way. Though, instead of George's song taking the position of assuming the audience won't like the song, Paul chooses to ask the listener what they think instead. It's kind of cute, really. You know, George is not caring what is being played or what the audience thinks because it's only a Northern song, and Paul is actually quite vulnerable here and in his showbiz McCartney way does care and just wants to please his audience. Now, I know this is gonna be another case of me overthinking said lyrics, but I can't tell whether this is just a silly little Paul story about some guy asking someone else if he thinks this Tin Pan Alley song is any good or not, or whether it's kind of in the same vein of Silly Love Songs, a song that Paul would write that year in that it's him addressing his critics, whereby he's mocking them with the well-known tropes of his back catalogue. You know, he writes silly love songs and supposedly his lyrics are not as strong as his music. Then you have the second verse where Paul asks about the melody. And then you come across this, where he sings, how do you like the melody so far? It's all right, quite appealing. But I haven't heard the cur- but haven't I? Hu- but haven't I heard the chords somewhere before? Let me see. Again, don't know about you, everyone, but to me that seems like Paul is recounting in song form the story behind the writing of "Yesterday" from Help. You know, his magnum opus, whereby he wrote the song in his sleep and went around to all of his friends in the music industry to help him check whether he'd stolen the melody somewhere. Before you know, something like that. Overall, folks, this song is dopey and silly and mawkish and is far too pleased with its own lyrical conceit, and I can see why McCartney moved on to something a little more upbeat and lyrically less obtuse in silly love songs. But regardless of all of that, this is still one of my favourite Macca cold cuts, and it really is odd that it didn't appear as a bonus track on the of Sound archive release. On to the following song now, and this is a track whose subject matter is something that all of us men in the UK rightly fear. This is Norfolk Broads. Mm after what seemed like an eternity of Paul noodling around on his new fangled gadgets, we finally get to go back to some good old-fashioned rock and roll. Typically, the impression I've gotten from these cold cuts is that the majority of McCartney's demos are either done on the acoustic guitar or the piano, which has led me to believe that most of his electric guitar-based rockers were worked on in the studio with other musicians. But here, with Norfolk Broads, we get to hear some Paul at home alone with his axe, doing a bit of solo rocking. It's also pretty fun to hear Paul playing with a different guitar tone and sound on this one. It had a certain element that reminded me of Mark Bolan in T-Rex, which I enjoyed. The other sound I could compare it with on a McCartney record, on a bootleg, would be Cage, a song we will get to soon. And I can only assume that... Rather like press-to-play, any rough McCartney guitar sound either gets re-recorded or turned down in the mix. Again, I said it a dozen times on this episode, but it's a shame that none of this heavier sound made its way onto the next album, bar elements of Beware My Love. Come on, Paul, give Jimmy something to do on the second album, yeah? That being said, though, why is everything in this episode... Why is everything that Paul is fucking around with this year so much more interesting by comparison to *Speed of Sound*? I'm not saying it's straight up bad, but it's nowhere near as adventurous as any of the stuff we're looking at today, good or bad. That being said, though, as interesting as this whole song is, the fact of the matter is is that it sounds like a mess. There is no discernible melody or method to any of this. And it just sounds like a snippet, take it out of a lengthy, wanky solo guitar session rather than something Paul took the time to remember and compose and capture. Like, this one really is throwaway, folks. Like I almost consider not including it at all, but you see it on all of the cold cuts lists when they're talking about the official run of tracks. So I had to talk about it, but there really isn't a lot to talk about. Except the title, because in case any of you listeners outside of the UK were totally stumped by those two words, let me catch you up to speed. Norfolk, spelled Norfolk, but pronounced Norfolk, is a county here in merry old England. It's the most easterly part of the UK, and being a bit out of the way, the Beatles only ever played there once in 63 Now, the term broad is a term that many younger listeners may never have come across. But for those who don't know, a broad is a generally derogatory term for a woman. It might not have. That may even have developed out of a term for a prostitute. So overall, not a very nice word. And whilst having a song called Northern Broads is quite funny in itself, I'm not sure if it's totally on brand for McCartney and it would be best for him to focus on something like Famous Groupies, or something like that. Unfortunately, we could only assume that the song would go into such lewd, bawdy territory, because the recording, as you heard there, has completely indecipherable lyrics. And if the song were more interesting, I might be more inclined to do some digging, but as it stands, this this growling rock grumble is just not worth it, you know. I don't think McCartney is going to be wasting any pressure. Again, I really don't think McCartney is going to be including this song in his uh, upcoming lyric slash autobiography. Following on from that, we have another interesting title slash titles from this era. We now have, Hey Man, Cards on the Table. folks. I was confused by this track when I approached it for my notes. Some sources list this as one song with the single title, Hey Man, cards on the table, but others have it as Hey Man slash cards on the table, which is very important in terms of Paul McCartney because it could be one song or it could be a classic McCartney two-parter type of composition. Now, this would normally be fine, as the song would have two distinct parts. That would be so obvious that there wouldn't be an issue. However, this song doesn't have that. Maybe I'm just not a proper musician, or I just have a tin ear for this sort of thing, but I can't make out clearly enough where one ends and the other begins. So the next part of this review is gonna be a a guesstimate to the best of my knowledge, you know? Straight away, the first part, I'm going to guess you get it from the start, the Hey Man segment, gave me very McCartney-1 vibes, particularly something like Ooh You. I'm just going to be, again, I know I'm going to be proven right on this, but the electric guitar, the style in which it's played, the phrases, the tone, again, pure McCartney, as is the straightforward drumming. It's strange though, because with McCartney milking every badass riff that he can, I'm surprised this hasn't been dragged out and dusted off already, especially when you hear McCartney blocking out some syllables for undiscerned, undetermined future lyrics. This, for one, is a song that I do hope is brought back for a second chance. For me, it has a core groove and melody that, whilst being in a a very rough form, clearly has the makings of something that McCartney could chip away at and sculpt into something more refined. The second part of the song, a.k.a. the part that ends it, Cards on the Table, isn't much to write home about by comparison, and once I'm certain it is this part of the song, yeah, I'm not that excited at all, and it leads me to wildly speculate whether this Lame Duck Part 2 is why Heyman hasn't come back. It just seems to be this unwieldy, lurchy, heavy version of the riff that we heard before, and whilst the... The differences, like I say, aren't all that drastic. It's certainly enough to make a difference. Once again, we have a rocker like Norfolk Broads just before it, where overall, it's just too rough and slapdash to have any elements of a McCartney cold cut that I personally enjoy. Like, I can't base my reviews on what ifs, and as it stands, this is just pretty forgettable, isn't it? Next up on our list is a songs whose title may, in fact, be my favourite ever for an incomplete song fragment. More of a reminder for McCartney, really, than a proper title. This is All It Needs Is A Darn Good Song. to yet another instrumental here today everyone, and only now do we have one that actually sounds like a classic piece of McCartney material. As far as the melody goes, this really could have been taken from any era of McCartney's career, but again, that rough and ready home recording style can only make me think of McCartney 1. With the prevalence of piano recordings around this time though, it is nice to know that Paul is always still working on the next acoustic finger-picking classic the closest we got to a proper acoustic track on speed of sound was san ferian which is more of a strummer anyway so again i'm glad to know that a song like this was on the table as it were but maybe the speed of which speed of sound was created did not allow paul the time to kind of uh, work this one out though i'm not sure it would have paid off really cuz in regards to this song this melody i'm quite indifferent towards it at best Like, aside from being the only McCartney finger picker from this era, the melody is so extremely unfinished. You know, there is clearly a second part missing from this song, an instrumental section or a vocal here to make it stand out a little more, because it's just so underwhelmingly plain and dull for a McCartney composition. Admittedly, there is a rather hypnotic, almost nursery rhyme quality to it as it goes on, But my gosh, does it ever go on. The only development we do get is the addition of some claves uh, about three quarters of the way through the four minutes runtime. But aside from that, it's just variations of that very basic riff. we have seen it a lot today. It's simple and may have sounded great at the time, but I know why it hasn't been revisited. I can see why many of you out there though would like this more than a lot of the stuff we've looked at today. And I guess I've already made it clear right now that I am incredibly biased towards the weirder material. But I was expecting a little more from this one. I don't know, I feel like this is very low-level Paul acoustic. And since it drones on for four minutes, for me it's the acoustic version of something like Reverse or Crazy Dervish Moog, you know? Pressing forth with the second track today that would eventually appear on Back to the Egg, we're going to look at a quick demo of Love Awake from Winter Rose Love Awake. Snow
0: falls in the winter Spring brings the rain But it's never too long Until the summer comes again
1: Another rather self-explanatory little recording, as you just heard there. This segment of a segment was recorded in early 77, making it the most contemporary selection on today's episode. But it was included in the same bootleg as all of these, so screw it, why not? There is nothing majorly different in this version that we hear from the final track on the album. It is just Paul on acoustic guitar, giving us Love Awake, pretty much ready to go, pre-packaged, you know? Of course, we don't get the harmonies or Paul really going for it on the vocal, but the atmosphere of Paul doing the solo, softer, romantic vocal here, alone with the guitar, is totally heartwarming. It's a a real treat, this recording. Uh, You also get some odd percussion elements that you don't get in the final song either, which is quite interesting. Of course, being just the fragment it, it is, we don't get the Winter Rose opening section, And whilst Love Awake has never been my favourite of the two, hearing McCartney do it on its own has certainly given me a little more respect for it as a work. It is strange for me, though, how, again, rather clearly during the Back to the Egg sessions, we have Paul and the band going back through the tapes because, you know, at that time, Paul is, is supposed to be being hip and contemporary, and yet, like, five of the tracks from Back to the Egg come from older sessions. You know, maybe that's why it never achieved its goal. Anyway, like I said, not too many changes here with this demo. Paul just pretty much re-recorded it with a few overdubs. And this version just stands as a cute souvenir to see where it came from. For our penultimate song, we're going to go back to where we all started and indulge in a double dose of Lyndon McCartney material. The first of which... Really could have been covered during our episode 2 in the 1972 era, but hey, this single actually came out in 77, and the last one was 77, so I think we're all good. So, purely by technicality, this is Seaside Woman. if I'd covered this one during the early 1972 episode and it turns out I hadn't. So I was worried that this would be at the start with the other homework but since it did come out in 77 I think I am okay to put this at the end of the episode now and you know it's a nice way to bookend things. I love Seaside Woman. As a song, as something enjoyable to listen to it's way better than it's ever given any credit for. This is why I do understand why it was eventually sold under the Susie and the Red Stripes brand, because so many more people would be able to appreciate it without all of their negative associations towards Linda. It's, it sounds horrible to say, because I, I generally do love the song, but, you know, Paul was Thrillington and the fireman, so I guess Linda can be Susie too. But I can't help but see it as them distancing themselves from Linda as a business move, rather than, say, Paul distancing himself as an artistic decision which is a shame but you know this song is way more important to the Wings canon I think anyone really realizes you know those harmonies those are peak Wings Denny Paul Linda trio harmonies and even Paul himself spoke about how those harmonies would inform the rest of what Wings would do Of course, this was Linda's first ever song, and only recently have I found out that she only wrote it to help justify her position as co-writer on the Ram album. If you remember Lou Grade from the James Paul McCartney TV special episode, well, that special was the result of the lawsuit that created Seaside Woman. I'm sure the whole case wasn't based around this issue, but it was certainly an element of the money troubles between the two, and Lou Grade was doubtful of Linda's songwriting credit on Ram, and since Grade owned the publishing rights to the Beatles catalogue, which Ram was still contractually obligated to be under, it meant that he was giving a greater percentage of the money to Linda since she was not a Beatle, and he was like, hmm... I don't really buy this. Paul is just saying it so that he can siphon money from me. And in response, Linda wrote Seaside Woman. It's her putting her cards on the table and going, who the fuck says I can't write a song? Here's a fucking song. Bam. And for anyone who still wants to throw shade Linda's way with this song, how many of you out there with your very first song would be happy for it to chart at number 59 in the US and number 90 in the UK? How does a song that's not very good do that? Onto the music itself, though. From start to finish, it just puts a stupid smile on my face. It's three minutes of pure distilled joy that's so full of life and free of the constraints of professional songwriting conventions. Okay, maybe that's putting it a little too finely, but there is a freedom and innocence to this song that I find really appealing. Also, once you've come to terms with the fact that this is not a typical reggae song, it's just some weed-induced, anglicised, popified version of Jamaican music, then you really can enjoy it for what it is. Like, I would call this song uh, softcore cultural appropriation. I don't find it that problematic. The music video, though, which we'll get onto another time, is another issue entirely. Now, without taking anything away from Linda, as I mentioned earlier in the review for Oriental Nightfish... Uh, This is a simple composition made better by the presence of a strong band-slash-producer, and I still stand by that. I mean, take the opening of the song, for example. Everything about it is clearly mad. Professor McCartney helping his equally mad missus out to the best of his ability to add complexity and dexterity to a song that may not have had it originally. This is largely why I feel that this song has been a bit of a wet squib when done live, Something like maybe being for the benefit of Mr. Kite, if that was done before the age of, like... As those performances just aren't able to recreate the the lively studio version that's just bristling with details like seagulls and waves to make it sound like it's a real beach, and we get all these silly little growls and whoops and cries, and it, it actually all sounds like a real busy beach, you know? This isn't just some empty studio this song's alive there's also some really underrated guitar on this song firstly you've got that really laid-back jangle of the rhythm guitar which makes me feel like the sun's beating down overhead and you also get one hell of a solo from denny lane here which is way more than this song ever needed or deserved and its inclusion is another moment of brilliant madness in this track in a very unexpected way Denny's solo also incorporates one of my favourite Beatles-slash-Paul elements, which is a live shout-out to a bandmate before a solo, and he goes, All right, slap it on me, Denny! Which is not only really cool, but also rather hilariously gives the game away as to the true identity of this band. Like, does Susie and the Red also have a lead guitarist called Denny? Hmm. So yeah, Seaside Woman is a hill I am pretty willing to die upon. I think it's pretty obvious why I like this song, and hopefully I've demonstrated for a few of you out there why it might be better than you had originally thought. It's not just a good song for Linda, it's a good song, and if Wings were able to recreate it accurately, I know it would have been a much more revered part of those early set lists, but since it's just Linda on one tiny little keyboard, it it just can't do it justice. However, my... However, my... However, my vinyl version of this, the studio version, is one of my most played items. So, you know, I don't think my love of this song is going to go anywhere anytime soon. However, as much as I would like to end things on the high point that is Seaside Woman, it brings me great pains to announce that we will indeed have to cover the B-side to this quirky number. Yes, folks, we move on to our final song, and it couldn't be more of a fizzle than a bang if I tried... Like I say, originally I wanted Seaside Woman to end this episode, but we can't talk about that song without talking about this one. And it wouldn't have made any sense in terms of ordering to do this one first. So without further ado, let's quickly get through B-side to Seaside. being quite the Linda advocate I may have listened to this song the least out of any of the wider McCartney canon I mean this is really really subpar stuff I mean it's more obscure than Bridge Over the River Sweet, it's more boring than the orchestra theme and it's not even funny bad like say P.S. Love Me Do I mean nothing screams less interesting and less vital to the discography than Linda's non-album B side to a non-album Linda McCartney A side. I get that. And whilst I wouldn't want to ever appear like I'm punching down, this song is still pretty terrible. (laughs) I think I've gone pretty easy on Linda today as well, folks. So I think I'm just going to cut loose a little here and just, yeah, tell you that that this one is, is awful. The whole song basically is just... A joke. Like rather like her husband, this is clearly Linda coming up with a rather humorous pun in real life and then writing it down for later use. I mean, she may have actually been discussing B sides with Paul whilst on an actual seaside. Um it, does anyone need me to explain the joke here? Like a B-side is the B-side of a record. And at least here in the UK, the beach is also called the Seaside, as in spelt like the C-S-E-A, but the joke here is that it's C-side. I know there's a possibility here that the whole thing is just one humorous yarn about how B-sides are rubbish and how they are throwaway, but why make that joke by making an intentionally throwaway kind of rubbish B-side? Like, wouldn't it be better if this was the Oriental Nightfish level, (laughs) or like, you know, something like Daytime Nighttime Suffering, where it's like, oh wow, the B-side's even better, but no, they play into that trope and its NAF, so they achieve their goal, well done, but it's such a shame that it's, it's crap, because Linda puts so much hard work into the A-side, and what annoys me more is is the phrasing's all off, like, it should be B-side to the C-side, not B-side to C-side, like, come on. I guess I can't help but feel like the idea of this beach-based B-side thing and keeping up with the Susan and the Red Stripes brand and act was... Top priority over writing anything better. I mean, if it were up to me, I would have just included an instrumental version of Seaside Woman instead. It's not like they had to whip up this B-side to satisfy the legal stipulations of Lou Grade or anything. You know, because they didn't release this as a single in 72 or anything. They released this in early 77, and they had time to write something else. Oriental Nightfish had been written by this point. That could have been a B-side... But, you know, maybe that wasn't on brand enough for Susie and the Red Stripes. But, folks, they had Linda's cover of Mr. Sandman that they recorded during the Venus and Mars sessions by this point. So the fact that they didn't use that, with that being an actual reggae-inspired song as well, is a massive missed opportunity. I normally jump at the chance to, to, to defend Linda here, but I do not have any affection for this song. Yeah, fuck B-side to C-side, and we're going to end on a negative note, folks. I'm sorry. And there we are. Another truckload of bonus tracks, non-album singles, hot hits, and cold cuts. I hope you enjoyed the selection. Hopefully you heard at least one new song today, learned something new. For you, it may have been a mixed bag. It has been slightly for me as well, like many of these episodes are. But whilst I haven't exactly been blown away by the majority of these today... It's still been an incredibly revealing showcase of McCartney's interests in this period. You all probably know by now that I'm not the biggest fan of Wings at the Speed of Sound, and I'm definitely looking forward to doing a Listen with Sam episode on that to see if any of my opinions have indeed changed. But hopefully I've convinced you today that Paul was not just uh, winging it. With (laughs) Wings at the Speed of Sound, pardon the pun, you know, he was still working full time doing his thing. He was producing an album for Denny. He was doing a lot this year. And I guess none of it was good enough for him. Like, it's so crazy that some of this excellent material, a lot of crap as well, wasn't included in any form. And whilst his prolific nature may not have benefited him in the short term, it definitely benefited him in the long term in terms of future material. So, you know, it all it all pays off in the end, folks. It's like me when I write notes for a future episode months in advance. Did he just compare himself to Paul McCartney again? I think he just did. Um, I'm sorry this episode's been a little bit all over the place, folks, in terms of the chronology again, but that is the nature of this side series. I mean, the next one we're going to do is probably going to be the piano tape, which is, again, a step backwards but you're all smart. I'm sure you can keep up with this mess. What have we got coming up in the future on Paul or Nothing? Well, quite quite a bit, actually. We've got a couple more solo episodes in the works. I'm going to do a summary of McCartney 3, where we go through everything that I haven't touched on already. Like I've mentioned earlier, there's going to be a Listen with Sam, Wings at the Speed of Sound episode. In terms of guest episodes on Paul or Nothing, I've got a Defending McCartney's 80s period with Ken Michaels. I'm going to talk about One Hand Clapping with Phoebe from Another Kind of Mind. I'm going to do the Up Close gig review with Alan Cosin. There's going to be another music video episode with Ed Chen. And of course, mid-April, I'm sure there's going to be a review of Three Imagined or Three Imagined that I'm going to be doing with my buddy Dylan Seavey. Uh, other shit I'm going to be working on as well is I'm hopefully going to be guesting on Another Kind of Mind soon enough. And I'm also collabing with the BC The Beatles podcast about doing something around Linda as well. Lots to come in the future, folks, but hopefully you enjoyed today's episode. Do let me know if there are any bonus tracks I've missed or cold cuts that I have not given attention to. Maybe a list of... (laughs) maybe a giant list of them, folks. You never know. There are so many Paul McCartney songs that are so easy to miss. Get in contact with the show at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Check us out on our Twitter, which is at Pod. For bonus content, check out the blog, which is paulmccartneypod.wordpress.com. Check us out on the socials, Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook, simply by typing in Paul McCartney Podcast or Paul or Nothing. Please leave us a review, give us a thumbs up, and please, and as always, if you've been enjoying today's content, please consider joining our Patreon page. There we are, folks. That's been another episode of Paul or Nothing. Thank you very much for listening. Peace and love, peace and love. Harry, Harry, Krishna. No autographs. Play us out, Denny.
0: we